All right. 2 Thessalonians is where we're going to find ourselves. We're going to be picking up in chapter 2 where we left off of this second letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica. And I will give a warning as we head into 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is this is one of the most misunderstood sections of Scripture or just generally confusing sections in all of the New Testament. So welcome into Woodlawn Chapel where hopefully we're not going to confuse you. We're going to try to lay this out here clearly and concisely, especially concerning the end times and the rapture of the church. But what we've found is we're in the middle of this study now that really began back in 1 Thessalonians as Paul is writing uh, these two letters to this church in Thessalonica. And some of the issues that are happening in the church is they've got a tremendous amount of persecution. There's a lot of uh, the world really oppressing them. The Thessalonians don't care that they're there. Uh, They've turned away from their idols, and this was their family identity for many of those people. And so they've turned away from idolatry, and those that were the Jewish believers, they've turned away from their traditions. And so they're being pressed in on all sides uh, so that the enemy can get them to quit. And one of their concerns that Paul addresses in 1 Thessalonians is specifically around the rapture of the church. Their feeling was that what happens to those who had already died in the faith? Would they not experience the rapture, this return for the bride of Christ? And so Paul goes to great lengths in chapter 4 to explain to them that they're not going to be left. They're not going to miss out. In fact, they're going to all be caught up together is what he says in chapter 4 verse 17. He also drives home the point that for those that are concerned that the wrath that they were experiencing was in fact the great tribulation. What Paul shares with them is, look, you're not appointed to wrath. That it may be pretty bad, your situation may be dire, but you're not appointed to wrath because you've been saved by the blood of the Lamb. And so all that leads us to this second letter to the Thessalonians where still there seems to be an air of confusion. And this time, what it really is being precipitated by is false teaching. There's now false teachers who've come in and they've tried to encourage these Thessalonians or actually discourage them that they missed the rapture and they're in the middle of the tribulation. Which, by the way, tells you how bad the persecution had gotten for this church. Things were getting pretty hairy. It was getting real for the Thessalonians. And so they felt like this must be true. And so Paul is writing this letter to dispel that false teaching and those rumors. And the people had gone so far to even have false letters written claiming that it was Paul writing them. And so you're going to see Paul refer to that here this morning. And what he's sharing with them and really trying to encourage them in is... Uh, in one area in particular, and that is hope. When we talked about this last week, in the first letter Paul wrote to them, in chapter 1, verse 3, he commended them on their faith and on their love and on their hope. And by the time we get to the second letter in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul commends them on their faith, he commends them on their love, but he does not mention their hope because uh, hope had been lost. They began to struggle in the area and in the arena of hope. And what you'll find is, as the enemy convinces us, and he will try to do this, that God cannot be taken at his word and for his word and by his word, that the first thing that gets lost is hope. I no longer have hope for my future. And so this is what Paul is mostly concerned with. He is concerned with their loss of hope. We're going to dig into verse 1 with all that as a backdrop of chapter 2. Paul writes, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. 
And so he gives the outline, really, of what he's going to talk about in this second chapter. It's concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gathering together to him. And so you've got the insight to what Paul's going to talk about. In verse 2, he says, We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come, past tense. And so Paul is encouraging them as they've had these false teachers now come into the church that, look, do not listen to false spirits. That would be a direct correlation to false prophecies. Remember, the reason for prophecy is actually to edify and to comfort. And so they're now giving false prophecy, which is telling them, look, you're in the middle of tribulation and you're all going to burn, baby. So nobody's being encouraged or uplifted by this. And Paul's saying, this is a false prophecy given by a false spirit. The next thing he warns them against is false words is what he mentions there. Remember I alluded to in the intro that there had been letters that they claimed were written by Paul, false words that were spoken of. And so they were trying to trick them that that Paul's teachings were incorrect or that here were some additional teachings, some things you needed to keep in mind. They were trying to mess with their doctrine. Now, anytime the word doctrine is mentioned in church, usually we get all stiff. Like, oh, I don't know about doctrine. That sounds like we're getting ready to argue. Here's the thing. Um, Doctrine just simply means teachings. And it is vitally important, while we get a little bit weird about doctrine and that word, it's vitally important for us to have a sound foundation, fundamental understanding of the Word of God, sound Bible teaching. And so there's not a problem with doctrine. In fact, doctrine is uh, so vital to our faith. Uh, Years ago, I got uh, called over to a gentleman's house. He owned a beautiful home in Mattoon. And the problem, the reason he called me over is uh, the walls were actually separating away from the ceiling. There were these huge gaps that would appear in the wintertime. As the rains would dry up, he would have these huge gaps all along his house, like it was separating away. But then the spring would happen, and it would rain, and lots of moisture, of course, and all of a sudden, uh, the gaps would disappear. Everything would be snugged up tight. No more, uh, no more gaps in the trim or up against the ceiling and the walls. And what the reality was for this gentleman, unfortunately, is his house was built on a clay that exists in this area that is expansive. That when it would get wet, it would actually swell. And when it would dry out, it would contract. And so the different seasons would actually cause gaps or close the gaps up. I share that to say, um, this is very much how our faith is. If we build our faith on something that is expansive and not a good soil, not a firm foundation, uh, what happens when uh, things dry up? What happens when we have a winter season is we have gaps, holes. The walls begin to get a little shaky. And then, oh, here come the spring rains. I'm all firm again. Yay, Jesus. But what's going to happen is before long, uh, another winter season is going to take place. And the encouragement here is to have a firm foundation, a solid doctrine that whether it's raining, whether it's storming, whether it's a dry season, uh, regardless of what the outside world is, is doing, we can take solace at knowing that the Word of God will stand. He will see this thing all the way through. And so Paul is trying to encourage them not to listen to these false words. And lastly, he talks about, or by letter as if from us. 
So here's where Paul is talking about these false letters that had been shared. They were trying to add to or take away from the Word of God. This should always send sirens off in your head when someone tries to add to or to take away from God's Word. It is not to be trifled with or added to or taken away from. And so... What these letters were trying to convince these people about is that the tribulation had come. That they had already missed the rapture and that this persecution, this was it, baby. They were experiencing the great tribulation. Now, Paul continues in verse 3 and he says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And so Paul says, look, the, the trigger to that final day or those last days is actually going to begin with the falling away. Now this word or phrase falling away in the Greek is the word apostasia. It's where we get our word apostate or apostasy. What it means is a turning away or a departing from. And so Two different translations that you could take from this. Bible scholars, way smarter than me, came up with both of these. The first of which is that the falling away is people growing cold in the faith. A turning away from the faith. A walking away from Christianity or from Jesus in particular. And what you'll find is as we get closer and closer to the end, there will be more and more people turning away. Or places that just simply grow cold. Hearts that grow cold. And unfortunately, what you find is the day and the age we're living in is people are growing cold at a rapid pace. And what's most unfortunate about this is the place that you notice it probably the biggest is in churches on Sunday mornings. There are folks that woke up this morning and they were, they were wondering uh, what God had for them or is God even real? And they uh, went to their local church and they were not greeted uh, warmly. And so regardless of what the pastor had to say, because there was no, uh, no love in the air, there was no hearts that were turned towards the people, uh, they very likely are going to turn away. And so a growing heart, a growing cold, and what Jesus says in Matthew 24 as he's talking about these days, he says the love of many will grow cold. And so very much is what we see beginning to take place. Now that's one possible translation of the falling away, the apostasia. Uh, the other, uh, remember, I shared with you that this word means a departing from, is that this, these events will be triggered from the removal of the church, a departing of the church, the rapture that Paul addresses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. What Paul says is a, a catching up, a snatching away quickly. The word in the Latin is rapturo. That's where we get the word rapture from, that this is the beginning of these last days is the taking away the removal of the church. And so here are the two theories, and if you ask me uh, which one I'm going to go with, I'm going to tell you definitively yes. There you have it. That's my definitive answer, because what uh, I think is uh, both are likely to be the trigger. That there is a falling away from and also a departure of the church, that both will exist as this uh, final time period for humanity will begin. Now, at the end of verse 3, Paul continues. He says, A falling away must come first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. And so here Paul makes reference to this man of sin, or the son of perdition, is what he calls him. Now, this word perdition literally means waste. The son of waste is going to show up. Now, another spot we find this in Scripture 
is Jesus. In John chapter 17, he makes this reference, reference about another person, speaking of Judas Iscariot. And in John 17, he's giving the high priestly prayer. He's giving a blessing over the disciples. And as he's praying to the Father, he says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave to me I have kept, and none of them I lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's speaking specifically of Judas Iscariot, the one that would turn his back and betray Jesus. And he calls him here literally the son of waste. Now, what else is interesting, if you look up this word uh, perdition, I know you guys love to get out your lexicons, but if you look up this word, you'll find it somewhere else in Matthew chapter 26. Here in Matthew 26, Jesus is getting ready to head towards the cross. Things are wrapping up. In fact, that evening he's going to be arrested. But as he's sitting there at dinner, uh, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, the sister of Martha comes with an alabaster flask. You might recall this story. And as Jesus is sitting there, she takes this flask of perfume of oil that in today's dollars is probably worth thirty to $40,000 of oil. It was everything. This was her savings account, her dowry. She'd saved it all up. And she takes the flask and she breaks it and she pours it out on the head of Jesus. She anoints him as king and for his burial. This beautiful scene that's taking place as the oil pours over the head of the king of kings. And yet, in the middle of this story, listen to the words of Judas Iscariot, Matthew 26, verse 8, where he says, why this waste? Why this perdition? So here is the son of waste looking upon this woman who's giving everything for Jesus. And he says, why this waste? I share all that to say that what the world will always try to convince you is whatever time or energy or resources, whatever thing you pour into Jesus, man, what a waste. Why would you waste that on him? Why would you waste that in this situation, in this setting? As I was studying through that this week, I came across the story of a guy named Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a missionary who, uh, along with four of his other buddies, made a decision to go into uh, Ecuador, into some of the most dangerous uh, parts of the world, and to specifically bring the gospel to a group called the Yucca Indians. And so Jim Elliott and his four buddies, they make their way to uh, Ecuador because they are going to share the gospel with this group that are so dangerous that every other uh, group of people that try to come in and actually uh, minister to or just bring supplies to this group of Indians in Ecuador, um, they murdered them. Not a great group of people. And yet he felt like the Lord wanted us to go there and share the gospel. And so for Jim Elliott, who was confronted by his friends and his family, and the people that claimed to love him, and they said, why are you wasting your life? Why this waste? Why this perdition? One of my favorite quotes, he said, uh, I put it up on the screen for you, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now what you need to know about the story is as Jim Elliott and his friends uh, make their way to Ecuador, and they arrive there with the Yuka Indians. Um, they murdered them. <laughs> All five of them killed. The story was such a big deal. It was on the cover of Life magazine. People 
you know, crying in the streets, why this waste? And yet years later, Jim Elliott's wife, along with several other ladies, they made their way back to Ecuador, forgiving these people that murdered her husband, bringing to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this group of Indians was so moved, um, they actually in droves accept Christ. An amazing story. We, we don't have the whole picture, but what the world will want to convince you is, why waste it? Why take what you can hang on to, what you can get for yourself, and pour it out of the feet of Jesus? I mean, don't you want to be safe and secure? I mean, take everything that's yours, put it in something secure, like the stock market. Whew, maybe not. Right, so what does the world actually have to offer by way of security? Nothing. And yet, Satan wants to convince us not to waste it on Jesus. But when you look through Scripture, what you're going to find is that there are no two bigger stories of waste than the son of perdition, Judas Iscariot, and the son of perdition, Lucifer. No two people have been shown more light than these two. I mean, think about this. Lucifer was at the throne of God. Many believe he was the worship leader in heaven. I mean, right there to see him in all his glory. And yet he wasted it. And for Judas, no different. Right there at the feet of Jesus, the miracles, the teachings, the very word of God coming out of the mouth of God poured into human flesh, and yet he wasted it. And so this is what Paul is referring to here as he says, and the son of perdition will be revealed, who in verse 4 opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. And so he is now speaking of the Antichrist. Now this is one of those phrases that it's important for us to understand that anti doesn't necessarily mean against as much as it means in place of. The Antichrist's desire is to be in place of God. And when you go back and look at what we know of Lucifer, of Satan, you'll arrive in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. This is what Isaiah writes Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mountain of congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Those are the five I will statements of the enemy. This is what I will do. And yet, verse 15, you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Satan, in all his pride, puffed up, thinking he could be put in place of God. This is the very mindset of the Antichrist. I will be in place of, on behalf of God. I will take his position. And so we read that and we go, man, that sounds awful. And yet... How many times I can possess the very mindset of the Antichrist? I'm not talking about demonic possession. I'm talking about I can have in my head, why do I need to pray? Why do I need to seek God in this position? Why do I even need to rely on God? That is the spirit that is of the Antichrist. And this is the spirit this man will have. But for those that have that spirit about them, unfortunately, it will cause them great tribulation. And we continue in verse 4. 
This man who opposes and exalts himself above all uh, that is called God and that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And so he's now referring to how the enemy, how the Antichrist will actually reveal himself during this time period known as the Great Tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble, it's called in the Old Testament. And what that specifically refers to is Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel, uh, in the ninth chapter, we have this prophecy known as the 70 weeks prophecy. And if you just hang on a little bit, I promise not to crash this plane. So hang on. We're not going to go into the side of a mountain. We're going to get through this together. But in Daniel chapter 9, we have this 70 weeks prophecy. When we were uh, at Palm Sunday, right before Easter this past year, I shared with you this section of scripture, which talks about the first 69 weeks, which are weeks of years. So a week of years is seven years. That makes sense. And Daniel prophesied that 483 years would transpire between the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem before Messiah the Prince would come. And what we find is if you look through human history that on the very day prophesied by Daniel to the day, Jesus walked into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday triumphantly, not missing a beat. And yet, as he enters the city, what we read in verse 26, after these 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. There, Daniel's prophesying of the crucifixion. The Messiah would be cut off. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall come with a flood till the end of the war. Desolations are determined. And so we have this delay, this pause in this 70-week or 490-year prophecy because Messiah was cut off. And it's all leading up to the arrival of the prince who is to come, speaking there of the Antichrist. And so there is a one seven-year time period known as the time of Jacob's trouble that is yet to be dealt with. And so this is what will begin as the rapture happens. It will actually start this final seven-year period. It will begin right then and there, this final week of years. And what will take place, you can imagine all that will happen on the world scene, right? As the church is taken out, as believers by the millions and the tens of millions are removed, it'll be complete upheaval. It'll be, it'll be a wild scene. I mean, folks will just be translated and planes will probably crash and all those movies you've seen out there. It's very likely that's what it'll look like. And so in will swoop the prince who is to come. And what he will do is he will declare actually peace, but it will be by his own power and his own design. In verse 27, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That is a seven-year period. And so the Antichrist will come in specifically to Israel and he will declare a covenant with them. He'll make a peace treaty. Now, if you think about what a peace treaty would look like for Israel, the people that oppose them the most are the Muslim world, the Arabs, right? And so for the Antichrist, he will swoop in, declare peace throughout all the world, but specifically uh, this section of the world and Israel in particular. And as he forms this peace treaty, what he'll do is he'll make a way for the Jews to be able to rebuild their temple. This will be the thing that will make the Jews look at the Antichrist as their Savior, their Messiah. Now, to go to a quick picture so you can understand what this scene looks like right now, uh, this 
picture is of the Temple Mount area. And what you'll find if the slides eventually catch up is that in the middle of the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem, you can go to to this day, there's what is known as the Dome of the Rock. That is a Muslim temple. That is one of their most holy places in their entire religion. And it's right smack in the middle of the Temple Mount. This was actually the uh, Muslims' way of being able to build their mosque in a spot that was the old Jewish temple. They're given a little to all those Jews out there, right? Like, take that. We're going to put this right smack in the middle of the Temple Mount so you can never rebuild your temple again. And so the idea is, how could Jerusalem, how could Israel ever rebuild their temple? Because you'd have to bulldoze this uh, Muslim mosque, the Dome of the Rock, in order to make way for the temple. This is a big problem. Because if you showed up with a bulldozer on the Temple Mount, uh, you're going to have a couple hundred million Muslims coming after you in a hurry. It's going to be all-out war. Now, what's fascinating about this is you can actually take a tour of the Temple Mount area, and what you'll find as you're touring and walking around is there's another little uh, monument here, this small one on the upper right. It's known as uh, the Dome of the Spirits or the Dome of the Tablets. Now, what's really fascinating about this is if you look uh, at it from a geographic standpoint, is it directly lines up with the eastern gate that goes into those walls into the Temple Mount. And what you'll find is historically, um, directly in from the eastern gate, the very gate that Jesus walked in uh, triumphantly as the Messiah at his first coming, it was completely in line with the temple. You see, for the Arabs, they have built the mosque here, this dome of the rock, in the wrong location. The temple actually uh, used to exist and reside right over the top of the Dome of the Spirits. In fact, this was likely the location of the Holy of Holies, the very place that the Holy Spirit would reside in the temple. They called it the Dome of the Tablets because you might remember that inside the Holy of Holies existed the Ark of the Covenant, which had the jar of manna in it, the rod of Aaron, and you guessed it, the two tablets of Moses. And so... For the Antichrist, as he comes on the scene, he will make a peace treaty for this area to be the location for the temple to be rebuilt. Now, how on earth could they ever worship and minister in the same area at the same time? Well, thankfully, what the Lord uh, allows to happen is a wall to be constructed between where the Arabs worship at the Dome of the Rock and the temple itself, which, by the way, Ezekiel chapter 42 Verse 20, as Ezekiel gets a vision from the Lord of this rebuilt temple, it says he measured it on all four sides and it had a wall around it, 500 cubits long, 500 wide, to separate the holy areas from the common. This places the mosque there, the Dome of the Rock, in the court of the Gentiles and separates off the holy place from the commonplace, what they would commonly call the Gentiles. So all that to say, uh, scripturally, this can all line up. So the new temple is now rebuilt, and the Antichrist is looked at as the savior for the Jews. They're excited until what we just read in Daniel chapter 9, uh, verse 27, is that at the three and a half year mark, he shall make a covenant with them for one week, but in the middle of the week, three and a half years in, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. 
even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. This is known as the abomination of desolation that Daniel refers to in chapter 11 as well. So at this three and a half year mark, the Antichrist will go into the temple where he's not supposed to be, into the Holy of Holies, and he will declare himself as God. And this will finally open the eyes of all the Jews who thought that he was their Messiah, and they'll realize what a mistake they've made. They'll turn their back on him. Uh, They'll cry out, probably tear their clothes Old Testament style, and the Antichrist will proceed to break all hell loose on them. He will come after them. What Jesus says, it'll be a tribulation like the world has never seen before. It's going to be downright awful. Now, back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, is that he will go into, uh, he will go in, excuse me, he will sit as God in the temple of God, showing himself uh, that he is God. Hopefully, that helps make a little sense out of it. Verse 5, Paul says, do you not remember when I was still with you, I told you these things? Paul's like, hey, remember, we talked about all this. Now remember, they were only together for three weeks. I mean, three whole weeks, Paul explains all this, and he's like, how did you guys forget so soon? You guys are going to forget this by the time you eat a bowl of chili. Like, I don't even know what he was talking about. I mean, it's it's our nature to forget, right? Verse 6, he says, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. He, in those last sentences, should be capitalized. What is holding the enemy back? How is it that Satan hasn't already risen up? Why hasn't this Antichrist presented himself yet? Well, here's what Paul is saying is, um, lawlessness is already at work. We see that happen all around us, right? We see that taking place uh, in our society at at a rapid pace. And yet there's something holding him back. The thing that he mentions here is he who restrains. He's speaking specifically of the Holy Spirit. And where does the Holy Spirit reside uh, the most in? But in his believers, in the church, the body of the people. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. So as the church exists, and we often feel like we have very little power. I don't know about you, but I go out in the world, and I'm like, I don't know that I have any power at all. Understand this, the very powers of darkness, lawlessness itself is being held back by Christ in you, the hope of glory. Even what little power you feel like you have, it is enough to overcome the enemy. And so this is holding him back until he is removed. This is what verse 7 says. He will do so until he is taken out of the way. So as the church is raptured, it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit disappears completely off the scene. It means this concentration of the church is removed. But the Holy Spirit will remain with people even through the tribulation. What you'll find is uh, he is God. So God is not going to disappear or give up altogether. And so he will be here, and I believe the greatest revival uh, in human history will happen during the tribulation, but it will come at a tremendous cost. For those who did not believe until that time, it will be very, very costly. Verse 8, Paul says, and then the lawless one will be revealed. So after this happens, the lawless one will then be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So the lawlessness 
one will be revealed and the Antichrist will be on the scene. And I don't know about you, but I hear these stories and I get this mental picture that you've got Jesus on one side and you've got Satan on the other. And there's this great tug of war, right? This back and forth match that happens between them. And because I'm a child of the 80s, the movie that always comes to mind is Over the Top, right? You ever see that movie? I mean, I probably watched that 50 times as a kid on HBO. It was awesome. You got Sylvester Stallone, Lincoln Hawk going up against the evil Bull Hurley. And they got this final last match, right? The big championship match in Las Vegas. And they're linking arms. And you've got Satan over here and Bull Hurley. He's saying, come on, little man, get up here. And you've got you got Sylvester Stallone. He's Lincoln Hawk. He's like, when I turn around my hat, it's like turning on a switch. I become a machine. Like, man, he's a machine. And they're going back and forth, arm wrestling. And he's about to go down. And then Lincoln Hawk does the over-the-top move, which I love. He wraps the fingers around like that and just ka takes down Bull Hurley. That's it. And I think about that with Jesus. And you realize that is not scriptural at all. Not even a little bit. What Paul says is that out of his mouth, the breath of his mouth, he will destroy him with the brightness of his coming. That as King Jesus comes back, and Revelation chapter 19 paints this picture of him coming in on a white horse, that King Jesus the righteous comes back, and just out of his mouth, the very sword of the word of God is going to slay his enemies. Where I come from, that's what we call a good old-fashioned hiney whooping. It's going to be over before it ever gets started. Jesus is going to put an end. And I think that's valuable for us to remember because in my life, I feel a lot like it's the back and forth, right? That I'm winning, I'm losing, and yet the reality is greater is he that is in me than he that is in this world. It is not even close when it comes to the final battle. King Jesus is going to prevail in a big way, and the brightness of his coming is going to obliterate the dark of the enemy. Now, verse 9, he says, And the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. And you have to wonder, like, who would follow this guy? But the reality is, for the, the shining one, for Lucifer, for this Antichrist, he's going to have power that God allows Signs and wonders he's going to be able to do. And people love signs and wonders. They loved it with Jesus. They're going to love it uh, with this guy. But the truth is, nobody was ever saved by a sign and a wonder. Like all the signs and wonders that can transpire, and yet you know what people want after a great sign and a wonder? A sign and a wonder. They want another sign and another miracle and another miracle. But what faith is actually grown by his faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God's word is what brings about faith in our lives, not signs and wonders. Verse 10, he continues saying, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. And they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There are really only two ways for a man to pray. It's either thy will be done or my will be done. There is no in between. The question is, which one is it going to be? For these people, they continually wanted their own will to be done. 
not looking to the Father, wanting their way. It's all about me. I want to be in control. And what God finally says is, okay, you can have it your way. That's fine. And for those that were blinded, he allowed them to just continue to be blinded. This is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 13, verse 13. He says that they will be blind and they will not see. They'll be deaf and they will not hear. They, they will have ears, but there'll they'll be no understanding of the word of God. And this is what he gives them over to. And what you'll find is the hardest part about witnessing to people is that God gives them free choice. <laughs> they can have a decision to make. And one of the most frustrating things is God allowing choice in people's life. And yet love always demands a choice. Forced love is not love at all. There's another word for that. And God's not all about forced love. He's about giving us a choice, allowing us to make a decision on our own for ourselves. Paul continues in verse 13. And he says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always, Brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, wait a minute. Here Paul's saying, God chose you from the very beginning. You Thessalonians, God chose you. But in the previous verse we just read, uh, they had free will. So which is it? Do we have free will or do we, uh, are we chosen by God beforehand? And the answer again is yes. <laughs> yes. That the only place, in fact, that these uh, cannot coexist is in my own mind. That in God's economy, a free will and his predestination have no problem existing together. That when you consider God knowing everything from the beginning to the end, the Alpha and the Omega, why on earth would he choose you if he knew you weren't going to choose him? And so, if you've chosen him today, congratulations. He chose you before you ever chose him. And if you didn't choose him and you're upset about it, I would encourage you uh, to choose him and then you'll find out. He'll choose you. It'll be a beautiful uh, combination. And so this is what the Lord has done. He has chosen us before the beginning of time. And I find this so very freeing because when I think about me and my existence, there's no way I would ever choose me. I would never pick me. Especially after everything I've done, the life I've lived, there's no way I'm picking me. And so I look at it, all that added up together, and then I, I find myself in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where Paul writes, But God demonstrates his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. At my absolute worst, he gave his absolute best. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful promise. He wasn't, he wasn't surprised or shocked by all my list of mistakes and mess-ups that when I was at my absolute worst, he chose me. He chose me. And in verse 9, he goes on to say much more, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. He's chosen me and he's going to save me and deliver me. What a beautiful promise. Now, verse 15, as we head down the home stretch. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. Hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. And so Paul now encourages them in tradition. 
And I think there's a danger when it comes to, especially for us as a non-denominational church, of being very uh, traditional about not being traditional. That almost like we look at traditions like they're a, a completely negative thing. Now, I would submit to you, anytime tradition is put above the Lord, it's a dangerous thing. But, but here's some traditions that we have to understand are also very much a part of our scriptures. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, attending church, gathering together in prayer. Because for many of us, um, we're never going to probably preach like D.L. Moody. We're never going to have words of wisdom like Solomon or Jesus. We're never going to be able to write beautifully like R.A. Torrey, right? Or have a wit about us like Spurgeon. And yet, King Jesus, Dwight Lyman Moody, Charles Spurgeon, Billy Graham, they were all baptized. You know what? I can, I can be baptized and I can be a lot like them. I might not have the, the giftings that they've got, but I can have connections all through tradition. Don't look tradition and snub your nose up at the traditions we've been given as a church, as a group of people, as, as this, this body of Christ. There's a lot of good that exists within that. In fact, when you think of us as a small church and we go, you know, we don't have a whole lot in common with the early church, and yet you, you wind up in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, when here's the early church, what they did was they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayer. Here's the tradition of the early church, to teach the word of God. We can check that box. To, to join together in fellowship, we can eat a meal together. To break bread, that's communion, and to pray. All these things we can do together as a church. And we can be a whole lot more like the early church than we would have ever given ourselves credit for. Finally, as Paul wraps up, he says in verse 16, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Here's what Paul ultimately wants you to get out of this chapter. He wants you to be comforted. I don't know about you, but I, I read through all this, and we studied through a whole bunch of end-time stuff and, and what it's going to look like in the last days. And yet here's what Paul says, I want you to be comforted. Most days for me, I'm not thinking about the last days or what it's all going to look like. I'm just trying to make it to tomorrow. I'm hoping to just get through today. Uh, today's got so many challenges of its own. I can't even begin to wrap my head around everything we just covered. And you guys are like, yeah, right. That's how we feel right about now. Here's what Paul wants to say. I want you to be comforted. Two times in this final set of verses, he uses the word comfort and consolation. And when I was looking at this this week, I noticed the word in the Greek is almost identical between comfort and consolation. And anytime the Holy Spirit repeats himself, it's because he wants us to pay attention. The, the word is the word paraclete. And you'll find it a few other places uh, in Scripture. Uh, one spot in particular is 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, where John writes, My little children, these things I write to you that you uh, may not sin. And that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The word advocate is the word paraclete. 
comforter. It's the same word. And when I look at my list of sins, all the things that I have done, the handwriting of requirements, uh, what I find is it's downright depressing. (laughs) I think about standing in front of the Father with that whole list of sins, that pile on judgment day, and man, I'm scared. I'm terrified. Because the reality is my flesh, I'm a blasphemer. I'm a fornicator. I'm a liar. I'm a deceiver. There's no good in me. I can put on a pretty good face, especially uh, when it comes Jesus' time, but in my flesh, that's me. And so if I'm standing in front of Jesus, in front of God the Father like that, I'm immediately crying out, I need a defense attorney. And I'm thinking back to the best attorney money can buy. Who are you going to think of? JC, right? Johnny Cochran. I'm thinking of Johnny. If it does not fit, you must quit. That's who I need at my side. But when I'm standing in front of God the Father, I need another JC. I need Jesus Christ the righteous. My advocate. My defense attorney. That when I've got that whole pile sitting there beside me, and the Father's looking down at me, Jesus willing to step in on my behalf and go, oh, hang on, Dad. That's one of mine. All that, remember, I took care of that. All that's cleaned up. All that's taken care of. All that's washed away. And so many times, I think we look at that pile and we get downtrodden and we feel like we are going to be judged at every corner. And yet what Jesus Christ the righteous has done is taken all that judgment away. How can Paul possibly write, we're to stand fast in the light of all that I've done? It's only because I have an advocate. I have a comforter, a consolation. Jesus Christ, the righteous, is the reason that we can stand fast. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you that in the light of the wrath that is to come, we are not children of the wrath. We are children of the day and we have no business being in the dark. Lord, the enemy wants to whisper lies and tell me over and over again that all that I have done is going to condemn me and sentence me to an eternity in hell. And yet, over and over again, you have decided to comfort and to encourage and to provide consolation. Thank you, Lord, for being our defense, our advocate, the one who takes all this sin and all this blame and all this guilt away. Father, as we get ready to take communion, Help us to remember the precious price you paid on our behalf so that all of the sin and the shame and regret can be washed away for all of eternity. I find a lot of comfort in that. In Jesus' name.